The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. High fly ball, way back in center field. It is out of here. A grand slam home run. And this one belongs to the Reds. UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. A comprehensive look at the Cleveland Indians and Cincinnati Reds. For the sixth consecutive season, we examine each team and their progress through the 2016 Major League Baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hey, good evening everyone and welcome to another edition of the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, glad to have you along tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com. Wish we could talk about something that was rather pleasant this evening amongst both the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. Unfortunately, this was a week that the bullpens just absolutely went into the dumper for both ball clubs, both the Reds and the Indians, believe it or not. Both teams ended up 1-5 and five on the week. And to find out why the Reds did what they did, let's go down south and talk to our resident Reds expert, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you tonight? I'm pretty good, Dave, and I, and I think what we have to admit is that two things are at play here. Number one, the Reds are living up to expectations, and the Indians aren't. The Indians <laughs> are supposed to win, and they're not. The Reds are supposed to lose, and they are. So I'm not sure which one of us should be more disappointed. I just find it amazing that the Indians are playing like they are and that the bullpen has just become a state of chaos for the Indians. You're right. We expected this out of the Reds. We especially, you know, the funny thing about the Reds is we may have expected this type of season, but I think you would agree with me, Mark, that we did not expect the pitching to be like it was for the Reds, especially when they lost basically four-fifths of their starting rotation. Mark, the starting pitching for the Reds has been good, but the bullpen has been just totally off the charts. Well, there's a difference between being bad or being unsuccessful, maybe that's a better way of putting it, and being absolutely horrific. Now, the Reds are knocking on horrific, the door of horrific. And let me put this into some kind of perspective for you and our fans. The Reds out of 30 teams, understand, the Reds are 28th in defense. That means only two teams are worse than the Reds in defense in all of Major League Baseball. The Reds are 28th in ERA at 5.35, a point you just made. Now, to put that in perspective, the Washington Nationals, their ERA is 2.30. That's three runs a game difference. On, on the offensive side, or staying with pitching, the Reds pitching staff, and this is an unbelievable number, in, in the month of April, the month of April, they gave up 45 home runs. That's, that's unbelievable. Again, comparing it to Washington, they gave up 15. The Reds have given up 145 runs. Washington, 61. The Reds are 22nd in batting average at 235, Pittsburgh at 290. The Reds have scored 93 runs, Pittsburgh 133. The Reds are not even close in any of these statistical categories and are, are really exceeding expectations in terms of horribleness. And you, you can look at these numbers alone and they, they really blow your mind in terms of how bad the Reds are right now. A 5.35 ERA, and they've given up 45 home runs. That that is that would shatter every major league record. Thus, you know, in the history of baseball, if they continued on that pace. So I'll bet you, Dave, if you look at the Indians' statistics, I know, I know they lost three games to Philadelphia, but I know at least two of those games they lost by one run, and so they're they're in the game. And their pitching is, is, is good. Their defense is much better. I think they're offensively, they're hurting, but the Reds are not even close to winning, Dave. 
Well, and yet you look at that mark and you say that they finished with a 9-14 and record in the month of April. They go into tonight's action with a 9-15 and or 10-15 and record because they finished up 9-15, and I should say, in the month of April. They won yesterday and ended up at 10-15 and heading into May 2nd. But, Mark, had it not been for the atrociousness of their bullpen, they may have been 500 or better. Even with those stats. Well, that's true, but you can't. Unfortunately, the stats lead to results. And I, they said, now this was a week ago, and it got worse this week. But a week ago, I read an article about the Reds bullpen that they were going to set many major league records in terms of the highest ERA in the history of baseball. They were on, I think they were number two at that point. Now you have to believe it's going to get better, but that, that right now, but this team. Is, is statistically headed to lose 97 games this year, but it, it could easily be over 100. And they got actually more bad news today in that Homer Bailey is now uh, back. He's, he's not going to throw for five days because he had pain in his arm. Uh, Devin Mesoraco may go in the DL because of a, sh- a shoulder injury. And then Zach Kozart yesterday tweaked his knee. I mean, it just, it's unbelievable how Everything has come down on this team this year, but looking at those numbers today, there's you can just look at the numbers and don't look at the standings, not knowing what the team had done, and you would probably project that with those numbers, the Reds are lucky to be at 10 and 15. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The Indians are lucky to be at 10 and 12 because you may talk about the one-run games that they were involved in over the weekend, but I'll tell you this, the Philadelphia Phillies bullpen completely dominated the Indians over the weekend in Philadelphia. Mark, you wouldn't have known, and you just, if these two teams would have been in generic uniforms, and you looked at both teams, you would have swore that it was the Phillies that were supposed to be the team that was competing for a World Series, not the Cleveland Indians. You would have looked at Pete McCannon as the manager of the Phillies, and thought he's the guy that has directed the Boston Red Sox to two World Series championships, not Terry Francona. You would have looked at the bullpens, Mark, and you would have said that Philadelphia has got the better bullpen than the Cleveland Indians do. That's just how bad the Indians looked. As a matter of fact, the Indians just finished up. They're off tonight. They just finished up a nine-game road trip. Now, on the surface, you would look at their record. They were 4-5 and five on that nine-game road trip, Mark. And I think you would say, okay, on the surface, that's not too bad, right? Yeah. Except for the fact that they won the first three games in Detroit. They were 3-0 and starting this nine-game road trip and lost the rest five out of the, out of the last six games. Two, three in Minnesota, and three in a row to Philadelphia. Two last place ball clubs, Mark. They lost five of six games to. Now that's just, that's absolutely unbearable, and it's inexcusable. <clears throat> and, and I'm sorry for all the Terry Francona lovers right, right now, but I watched Terry Francona manage six games against Minnesota and Philadelphia, and Mark, he looked like a guy that was completely lost, had absolutely no idea what he was doing on the bench, and had absolutely no interest in winning some baseball games. It made me wonder if he really was interested in managing this season. I'm really wearing thin of the Francona act from the standpoint that he has, he, he changes the lineup from day to day, changes his bullpen from day to day. He'll use, uh, for example, I talked to you earlier about this today, uh, against Philadelphia on Saturday or Sunday, or no, it was Saturday, excuse me. He brings in Kyle Crockett in the fifth inning in a game that Trevor Bauer is pitching. Bauer pitched four and, two, uh, four and a third innings. He brought in Kyle Crockett to face Ryan Howard. He got Ryan Howard out. Now you've got the rest of the ball game to go, Mark. You've got four and a third innings to go in this ball game, and he pulls Kyle Crockett out of the ball game 
because they've got a right-handed batter coming up, and they bring in a right-hander, and now and the bullpen's already shot. This guy is not managing, in my mind. And yeah, I know I've had some people question my mind. I will, I, I will admit that. But in my mind, and in my years of watching baseball, I, I have no idea what this guy's doing on the bench. Well, let's let's turn our attention to uh, somebody who seems to be doing it well, and we brought this up last week. Uh, the job that Dusty Baker is doing with the Washington Nationals. If there was ever a guy who is destined to be at the right place at the right time with with the Washington Nationals, it may be Dusty Baker and what's going on over there. Uh, Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg, those guys have been circling superstardom now for two or three years apiece. And it, it may happen this year. And Dusty may be the recipient of some unbelievably talented guys. And you and I both picked Washington to win the last couple of years, actually. And they, they terribly disappointed. And we look back to that was a 2012 uh, playoff game and they didn't play Strasburg yes. uh, as maybe a turning point for that organization in a negative way. But, boy, they're playing great ball right now. And i tell you, a great playoff would be the Cubs and the Nationals in the National League Finals. Well, you look at this Washington team, Mark, they're 17-7. and seven. They're, they're a half game behind the Cubs for the best record in the National League and a full game behind the Chicago, actually tied with the White Sox because the White Sox are 18-8 and eight heading into tonight's action uh, for the best record in baseball. The Nationals are finally playing up to their potential. And I think you've got, yeah, I agree with you. Dusty Baker is a main part of that. And, Mark, you can even go back to what you had said earlier tonight about the Reds and about how their pitching is so, so bad. Well, you could almost correlate that with the fact that that was about the time that their pitching started going downhill. I know you're going to say they got rid of all their pitchers, but you could look at it and say, hey, that coincides with the time that Dusty Baker was there, that their pitching was so good. Now, yeah, Brian Price was the pitching coach, but... Dusty was the manager, and now Dusty leaves, goes to Washington. It's funny how their pitching now suddenly has improved. Based upon the stats that you just mentioned here, they're a full earned run better than they were last year without Dusty Baker. Well, no, and, they've gone, and the Reds have gone downhill with Brian Price as manager. Uh, there's, there's no way a team's going to maintain a, a 2.30 ERA for the year in Washington's case. However... Uh, the problem with the Reds is, is, is systemic. It, it's not just Brian Price. And I, you and, I, you and I have had this discussion before. Baseball isn't that tough to manage. I mean, there's so many, so many, only so many things you can do on the bench. Where, where the problem comes in is starting at the fundamental grassroots of the scouting system, the, the, the investment the team makes, the draft picks. Because if you if you draft bad players, players that don't perform, like the Reds have done more often than not in the draft, they've not been good in the draft, then you're going to have bad teams that a great manager is not going to fix. And Brian Price is going to be saddled for the rest of his career. His numbers are going to look terrible after three years of losing with the Reds. And it's almost inevitable they're going to fire him at the end of this year if they don't do it before. And what would get him fired before during this year is if the team gives up. In other words, they're not hustling and they they thrown in the towel by June. I think you could see a change uh, sooner than the end of the year. But uh, I don't blame Brian Price entirely for what's happened. I disagree with a lot of his stuff in terms of his uh, player selection. But who makes these trades for for some of these players the Reds have gotten? That's not, We've talked about that for years. Yeah, it, it's, it's not uh, Brian Price. It, it's, it's the general manager, and the trades have been horrific. How can, they have been. How can you get, give away a Rolls Chapman for what they got? Do you remember what they got? No. Okay, point taken. That's that's the point. You can't remember who they got. They got a, a third baseman, Jlingo, I think is his name. He's hitting 180 in in Double A. Uh, this this Coffin guy they brought up. Uh, he pitched. He's, he's pitching okay, but for a Rollis Chapman, one of the great pitchers of all time, to get nothing for 
that's just stupidity. And they, they, they panicked. And I'm not saying that he would, he wouldn't even be with the Reds yet. He's, he's serving a, a 30 game suspension. But for a Rodas Chapman, you've got to be more patient than they were, or you should have traded him two years ago. And they didn't do oh, it. I, I agree. You and I have discussed that uh, ad, ad nauseum, really. I mean, we, we have. We've looked at that situation. I mean, they were given two better deals by Washington and by the Dodgers, by all media reports. They were given two better deals to get rid of Araldus Chapman, and they ended up trading him to the Yankees for virtually half of what they could have gotten from the Dodgers and the Nationals. Yeah, it makes no sense, and th- this conservatism here in Cincinnati is so asinine because he got in trouble like a lot of players do. They said, well, let's just get rid of him. Let's just move him out of town because something bad might happen. Well, something bad did happen. You traded one of the great arms in the history of baseball for nothing, and that is going to come back and haunt the Reds for, for a year, really years. You're not going to replace an Rose Chapman with anybody that the Reds have gotten on the roster as a result of trades. And it, they're not, there's not one player they got back in a trade that you could look at and say that's going to be a superstar. And at least you, you want to have some talent you get back. And I think the, the, the best trade they made was with Kansas City when they got three left-hand pitchers for, uh, for Johnny Cueto. And, you know, Brandon Finnegan, I think, is going to be a star. Uh, maybe Reed, I think, could be very effective. I like Reed. Matter of fact, Reed is very, very high on a lot of people's minor league prospect list. Yeah, he he pitched the last two games in AAA. He's pitched very well. But these guys have not, Reed has not been in the big leagues yet. And uh, John Lamb, who's the third pitcher they got, his, his last outing wasn't bad, but the outing before he gave up eight runs in a minor league game. So these guys, it's yet to be determined if they're going to be effective. But what, what bothers me about the Reds, and I think their pitching in two years will be fine. I really do. They, Dave, their, their position players, it's, it's as weak as I've ever seen. I, I, I don't understand why they don't draft something other than a pitcher at, at, at times. Get, get a third baseman, get a left fielder, get somebody you can hit. They don't have that. So I don't care how good your pitching is. If people aren't going to hit, uh, it's not going to do you much good. Honestly, Mark, you know, and I've thought this for years, and I want to get your your opinion of this. If I was running a draft of a Major League Baseball team, there are three positions I would draft. None others. Just three. Shortstop, catcher, pitcher. And the only reason that I would do those, pitching is obvious. Catching is obvious. Shortstop, if you're playing, they, high school teams and college teams normally put their best athlete at shortstop which means to me you could take a shortstop and if all you do is draft shortstops you could move that shortstop anywhere primarily center field a lot of people you know will move a shortstop to center field for example uh peraza the kid that the the reds got from the dodgers you know there, there was a lot of talk about putting him in center field i know a lot of a lot of teams you know robin yount is probably the most prominent one from years past, came up as a shortstop and ended up his career as a center fielder. Those are the three positions that I would look at because you could move them just about anywhere you want. Catching, you could put them at first base for crying out loud, Mark, or move them to the outfield. Shortstop the same way. Pitcher, you know, we've seen how many pitchers, Mark, throughout the years that we have seen that were outstanding hitters that just could not get anybody out at the minor league level and they switched them and they came up as a hitter. Yeah, it's certainly happened, and I agree with you. I mean, a shortstop is typically the best athlete on the team. They can play anywhere. Billy Hamilton, you know, he came up as a shortstop. He's playing center field and playing it very well. If he can only hit. Uh, so you're right. I, I think if you draft some pitching and you draft some shortstops, you're going to have good athletes on your team. But at some point, you've got to look at the weaknesses of your team as well. And systemically, the Reds over the last three or four years have not drafted position players, and it's come back to hurt them. Uh, Jesse Winker right now is the best offensive player they have, but he's been in the minors now for four years, and he's he's hitting well. He's, I think he's hitting 310, but that's 310 in AAA, uh, and, and typically you knock off 30 points when they come up in AAA to, to major league. So he's a 
you know, a 270, 280 hitter. Is that going to change this team around? No, it's not. So I, I don't know why you, you can't be a little more broad-based in terms of seeking out athletes, but the Reds just don't have any hitting on this team. And uh, Shevler and Adam, um, what's Adam's last name? Left fielder. Not sure. Well, he's playing left field for the Reds now. I've forgotten his name. Uh, that, that's how impressive he's been. Uh, but, but Chevrolet was supposed to be, you know, the, the big bat they got, uh, and he he's just not producing either. He's hitting 145, 150. He had a couple of hits yesterday, but that's not been the norm. So the Reds, again, the hole in left field continues, and in center field you've got a guy hitting 215, 220. Jay Bruce is now going, you know, receding to the norm, uh, receding to the mean. He's hitting around 250, 255. They'll probably end up around 230 again. And then I want to talk a little bit, too, about Joey Votto. I don't know what's happening with Joey unless it's between his ears. Honest to God, Dave, I, I have not seen a player this complicated to understand in a number of years. Maybe since, remember Richie Allen? <coughs> well, Richie Allen had had more problems other than, you know, Joey Votto right now is is all out of sorts. Uh, his swing has changed, as you've brought up. Um, his approach to home plate at, at the plate is totally different than it has been over the past couple of years, especially last year. He's got a totally different different approach. Richie Allen's problems all had to do with everything off the field. You got him on the field, he was lights out. He was, but he was also kind of a head case. And there's there's certain guys like that. You look you look at Joey Votto last year. He had one of the great second halves in the history of baseball. And this year, he's hitting 230. He has struck, here's the thing that amazes me. He struck out 25 times in 25 games. That's not Joey Votto. And he's only walked, I think, 13 times. He's making a change in his approach. And I don't know why. Sometimes I think Joey tries to overthink the game. He chokes up four inches and then he doesn't choke up. It's 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 a strange deal, and this guy, boy, if he could have had any kind of protection over the last three or four years, he could have put up Hall of Fame numbers, and he still made make the Hall of Fame. But it's a lot harder when you start off the seasons like he does, hitting two twenty, two thirty, the first month of the season. Mark, you alluded to a problem earlier, and I want to get back to it as far as the the managers are concerned. And I talked a little bit about Terry Francona. I want to talk about Francona and Price here for a few minutes. And and let's start off with Francona. Mark, he cannot decide on a lineup. Now, I know this has been his – it's been my bugaboo with Francona over the last four years that he's managed the Indians. But, Mark, this season he has not even been able to figure out who the leadoff man is going to be. He has gone to such extremes, Mark, as putting Carlos Santana in the leadoff spot. Now, Santana did it last weekend against Detroit, the very first time he has ever hit leadoff in a Major League Baseball game. Matter of fact, he said in an interview he had never hit leadoff before. And he let off the game with a home run against Justin Verlander. Well, you know, okay, fine. But after that, he did nothing. And when you've got a leadoff man, Mark, I, I know what you're saying about Billy Hamilton and can't hit, but he's the prototypical leadoff man as far as what it is that you want for him to do on the bases. Mark, Francona's got this idea in his head that certain players can't do things, and he won't give them a chance to do it. And, and when, for example, Rajay Davis... Rajay Davis is a liability, not only in the outfield, but on the base paths. This guy doesn't know how to run the bases, he doesn't know how to lead off, and he can't catch a fly ball. Anything that is hit directly at him, he just, it's a circus. Mark Francisco Lindor right now and Tyler Naquin are the two best hitters that this baseball team has. And he absolutely refuses to put either one of these guys in the leadoff spot because he's afraid that it will hurt their psyche. He doesn't want them to get down on themselves. He has tried and tried and tried to make Justin Kipnis a leadoff hitter. 
Kipnis really doesn't want to hit leadoff. He'd rather hit second or third. And when he moves into the leadoff spot, Mark, I don't know if subconsciously he's thinking about how he doesn't want to be there. But the thing is, he can't hit leadoff. You get him in second or third, he hits the baseball. Michael Brantley, they're trying to force him back into the lineup. Jan Gomes, they don't know where where to hit him in the lineup. Fifth, sixth, maybe seventh. Lonnie Chisenhall, they've got it in their heads that he can't hit left-handers, even though the stats show otherwise. Mark, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I am t- and the bullpen is in shambles. I haven't even gotten to the pitching uh, and, and how Francona uh, treats his relievers, Mark. Am I crazy for thinking that a guy that won two world championships with Boston, which, by the way, Mark, and I went back and looked at it, he had a set lineup, and all he had to do was write in the lineup every day for yeah. the Red Sox with those teams. Am I crazy to think that yeah, this guy look at that is over-managing? Yeah, I think so. Uh, not not real crazy, but maybe a little crazy. Uh, first of all, look at that Red Sox lineup. I agree. That's what I'm saying. He had an everyday lineup. I know, but look at the players he had. They performed. If, Correct. If, if they're performing, you don't have to make changes. You just... Plug in the lineup and, and let's go. Let's go play baseball. But this team, I think you would agree. This Indians team had a, has a better pitching staff. I'm talking about pitching only right now than that Boston team did. And he piecemeals this these pitchers like they don't know how to get anybody out. Well, again, you, I think the the idea of overmanaging. Uh, comes from desperation to some extent when the guys you put out there don't perform. You and I have a disagreement. I, I think managers in baseball are really overrated for their on-field uh, contributions. I think what a manager does is that's far more important is manage 25 personalities, not making up a lineup card and that kind of thing. We can agree to disagree on that. So I, I don't think that you, you look at Francona – He's had enough success <clears throat> that, in my mind, the decisions he makes are probably based on pretty good fundamentals. <clears throat> that that may be, but there is just too much tinkering that I don't think... You know, ball players are creatures of habit, Mark. You and I would agree with that. They're, they're creatures of habit. If it's a day game, they know when to get to the ballpark. They know what they're doing. They know how to get these things. If they're on the road, they know when they've got to be at a certain spot, what their hotel room is. And and if it's a night game, they know when they've got to be at the ballpark. They're all creatures of habit. It's a, it's a marathon, as we hear. It's not a sprint all the time. But if you go to the, if you go to the ballpark, and I realize I'm, I may be a little picky about this, I guess is, a, is the best word I can think of right now, but if you go to the ballpark and, you don't know where you're hitting that day. You don't know where you're going to play. You don't know what position you're going to be at that day. You don't know if you're going to be hitting fifth, sixth, or seventh. It's a left-hander in the lineup. Gee, am I going to be in the lineup? What, what, what's going on here? So, so those are the things that you're thinking of on the way to the ballpark before you ever even get there. Instead of thinking, okay, I've got to face Justin Verlander today. What I'm saying is all these ancillary things are entering your mind rather than what you should be focused on. Well, I disagree. I think if you have a player that worries about stuff like that, you got the wrong player. There are baseball players out there. Well, maybe they do. That, that's, that was my next point. There are players out there that that stuff doesn't even enter into it. It, it, it. They go out there, there's a pitcher, he throws a baseball, I'm going to try and hit it. And I think, again, some of these, these issues regarding the, the sensibilities or the psychology of, of baseball players I think it's really overrated, in my opinion, that if, if you're a ball player, if you let that kind of stuff bother you, you're just not strong mentally. And I, and that could be the case in a lot of contemporary ball players. They've been babied their whole life. You know, they come up in these select teams when they're 10 years old and they said, you're going to be a superstar. It's, it's unbelievable the stuff that I've seen on the tryouts that we've had for our film of some of these players. You know, 10, 12, 13 years old, and they're being adorned already as future superstars. Spoiled brat. <clears throat> exactly, and I think a lot of that carries over to the big leagues. Uh, but at the other, on the other side of the coin, 
there were some players, like it, it never bothered Pete Rose where he played. He'd go out there and hit 310 no matter where he played. Some players just don't have that capability. No, but Pete, you know what? <coughs> but Pete, when he was playing, I, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. When Pete was playing, he played at one position for a long period of time. And he knew he was going to be in the lineup. He was going to be a leadoff every day. That doesn't matter. And he knew. I mean, he even had a 20. I think the shortest period of time, Mark, that he ever had between switching positions was the 24-hour period that, that Sparky gave him to move to third. Other than that, I think he, he always had an off season to get used to playing another position. Second base to the outfield, outfield after years, moving into third after 24 hours. Then the, then he signs with Montreal, they move him to, or Philadelphia, excuse me, they move him to first base. I, I mean, he's always had a long period of time, he always had a long period of time, or he was always at one position for a long period of time. With the Indians, they get their mark, and Rajay Davis doesn't know if he's going to play center that day. He doesn't know if he's going to play left. Marlon Bird doesn't know if he's playing right field or left field or DHing. Santana comes to the ballpark, doesn't know if he's playing first or DHing. It, 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 it's amazing how these, you know, oh, Jose Ramirez, don't even get me started on that guy. He's played at second, short, third, left field, and center field. And the guy can't play any of them. Well, again, David, you and I could disagree on this. I think sure. that, that these players, I don't think they, they care. If they're in the big leagues, if they want to stay, they better be able to learn more than one position or it's going to limit their ability to play. And I don't think that has, I think that's an excuse uh, for non-performance. And if you're a major league ball player making the money these guys are making, uh, I think, look at the Cardinals. They, they, they change their lineup all the time. So do the Cubs. The Cubs are always changing their lineup. Chris Bryant plays left field. He plays center field. He plays third base. You never know what Madden's going to do. And that's been a trademark of Madden's, that he puts players all over the field as he sees fit. And that's the kind of team you want, that they're adaptable players physically and emotionally, and they can go out there and play any position you put them at. Here's the difference. They always know they're in the lineup. And they always know where they're going to hit. Well, I, I disagree. We can. Uh, yeah. We can now, now let's move over to Brian Price for a second. Brian Price has been put into an impossible situation. Our producer Greg Mitchell brought it up to Lance McAllister and Mo Egger a few weeks ago. You and I sort of glossed upon it, but Brian Price has been put into an impossible situation, Mark. He's got one year left on his contract. He is managing a team that is expected to do nothing. Now, I think in order for the Reds to to be fair to this guy, they have either got to cut him loose right now or sign him to an extension to let the players know he's the manager, he's who we're dealing with, end of story. Am I right or wrong? No, I think you could be right to that about that. But when you have Adam Duvall was the player I was thinking of in left field. When you have Adam Duvall and you have Scott Shebler and you've got a, a cast of characters in this bullpen that most of us have never heard of any of them, uh, you can't be expected to win. And you get a 215 hitting center fielder, a 230 hitting in a good day and a good year right fielder. Those kinds of performances are going to make it. They would make Joe Madden a losing manager. And so, Agreed. So you have to decide, is this guy, Brian Price, going to lead you when you are better? Is he going to be the kind of manager like a Joe Madden who can take a good team and make it a great team? And I don't think that's Brian Price. Now, everyone says here in Cincinnati that Jim Ribbleman is, the you know, the guy – uh, who who quit was in Colorado when they wouldn't renew his contract. Washington. That's right. You're right. Washington. Yeah, exactly. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know if he'll get the job or not. Mark, I've heard I've heard Tom Brenneman and Chris Welsh talk about it on the broadcast that that a lot of people think that he's the heir apparent and that he may get a job elsewhere. You know, they, they talk about Riggleman as as being a managerial candidate at several other spots. Yeah, that's true. And if the Reds don't act and do something, you know, Ruggerman will go somewhere else. And, I, again, 
in the minor what, what scares me about the Reds is the inexplicable lack of performance in the minor leagues. I mean, the Dayton Dragons, they're one of the worst professional teams I've ever seen. And that's their high A team. And they're not, they're not going to go anywhere this year. They, they could lose, you know, 75% of their games as they're doing now. And double A's not much better. Triple A's not bad, but you've got uh, arguably, you know, one of the best pitching staffs in the minor leagues down there. And you've got 4A players playing in triple-A ball clubs. You've got 4A players playing on the Reds. True. So that organizationally is my point, that this team, there's not any group that you can look to and say, okay, we're going to get our heads kicked in this year, but boy, next year or next two years, we're going to be tough. There's no Bryce Harpers coming up. There's no uh, Strasburgs coming up. It's just not there in the Reds organization. So should the Reds eliminate all doubt as to who the manager will be and sign Brian Price to a long-term extension? No, I wouldn't. You know, again, I want to see how this team performs uh, this year in terms of staying in there and playing hard. I mean, this team lost 14 games in a row last year at the end of the year. To me, that team gave up. Now, I, I do blame Brian Price for that. So if that's going to happen again, no, you can't have him there. Well, you know, and, and someone could say that the reason they gave up is because they didn't think he was going to be back. They didn't think he was going to be the manager. And that's one of the things I think you need to do with a young team. You know, the Indians did this back in the in the early 90s, Mark, when Mike Hargrove took over for John McNamara. Remember that name? Sure. John McNamara. Yeah. They They let John go and brought in Hargrove when they decided to go with the youth movement, and they let everybody know up front, we're going to take our lumps, but Hargrove is the manager, and they right away gave him a five-year contract. And by golly, in 1995 is the year that they made it to the World Series. That was the last year of his contract, and he cashed in like like everybody knew he was going to. But the young players knew he was going to be the manager. The Reds are doing the same thing here, Mark. Maybe what they need to do is get a manager in there that the players are going to know he's going to be it for the next four or five years. Well, I think you do need a younger manager uh, with with a team like the Reds uh, to grow with that team. And it's right now, you know, a young manager going to the Nationals wouldn't have been a smart move even though they have a lot of young players over there, but they have so much talent that a Dusty Baker, who's, what, 67 years old, he was a perfect match over there. But I think in the Reds' case, having a, a younger manager, a guy in his 40s, now Brian Price, I think, is is in that in, in that range, but he has simply not produced as a manager. Uh, you can't blame him with the talent, but you're going to have a losing tradition with this team very quickly. They've lost two years in a row. They're going to lose this year. It's likely they're going to lose lose next year. You, you got to make some changes. Mark, right-hander Anthony DiScalfani. You know, we we talk about him. He's one of the guys that the Reds are pinning their hopes on. He had a minor league appearance this this year or, or this week on Friday night. He went five innings in a game against Class A Dayton. You already talked about the Dragons. His, his fastball hit 93 to 95 miles an hour, but he dis, he reported some discomfort. So when he comes back is another story now. That's right. It, it, same with Homer Bailey, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these guys are not getting better. And you wonder systemically, again, if this organization is doing something with these arms. <clears throat> and we talked earlier today about an idea that I, I think somebody at least should try. And that is looking at a pitching staff uh, not as starters and relievers, but as pitchers. And I believe that the if you look at the arm injuries that most of these pitchers have, look at it. It's mostly starters. It's because teams are asking these guys to throw 90, 95 miles an hour for 150 to 200 pitches, including warm-ups. And that doesn't include what they do in the bullpen. Before the game. So that, that is a huge stress on the arm. And I just, I heard something just the other day that the, the huge amount of injuries and Tommy John surgeries, and the question was unanswered, well, what is baseball going to do about this? 
Well, if baseball wasn't so die-in-the-wall uh, traditional and they look at everything and historically, well, this is why we've always done it, then we have to keep doing it even though it's ruining the careers of players we've given millions of dollars to. What happens if a Strasburg, as an example, didn't pitch more than three innings of any game, but the entire bullpen pitched two or three innings when they pitched? And that's it. You guys, then you have guys coming in throwing 95 to 100 miles an hour, letting, I, mean, I think that would be a very tough pitching rotation to face if you have guys coming off the bench. Like, you know, Homer Bailey is an example. <clears throat> Homer Bailey has, has thrown 97, 98 in the seventh and eighth inning of ball games. What could he do if he knew he was only pitching two or three innings? How hard do you think he could throw? Probably 99, 100? Probably. And, and he, if he knows he's only throwing 20 or 30 pitches a day, and maybe he pitches every other day or every third day instead of every fourth or fifth day, I think it would, it would sustain their careers over a long period of time. It would make a pitching staff devastating because you could have 13 pitchers, say four left-handers and, and, and nine right-handers, Coming in at, at exactly when you need them, maybe maybe the biggest part of a game is is a left-hand hitter coming to the plate in the fifth inning. Well, normally you keep your starter in there and see if he can work out of the jam. Why not bring in a guy that can throw 98 miles an hour, a left-hander, to face that guy at that point? I just I just think that baseball has to consider things like this to save the arms, to save the money, the careers of these players but make their pitching staff much more effective. I, I, having a five-man rotation and thinking you're not going to have injuries through that is, is absurd. You, you are. How many five-man pitching rotations have gone the entire year without missing starts or, or, or severe injuries? Not many. Oh, very few, if any. That's, that's my point. So, And you look at the bullpens. Uh, most bullpen pitchers don't get arm injuries. It happens, but most of them don't. Look at Chapman. For six years, he came into the Reds throwing 100 miles an hour. Never had a sore arm because he's only throwing 15, 20 pitches a night. And maybe he'd only pitch two or three nights a week. That's not going to stress his arm. And he could come in any time and throw 100 miles an hour. Well, you know, we discussed this earlier today, and I'm going to play devil's advocate on this, as I always do. Uh how do you explain the pitchers in the past being able to throw 300 innings a year, year after year after year, without arm injuries? Uh, one thing that is majorly different is the velocity they were throwing at. Uh, Robin Roberts and those guys, they were throwing in the high 80s. They were not throwing 90, 95, 100 miles an hour. It's a big difference. And they, they were throwing a lot. It was a different kind of, of pitching back then. Uh, they, they were spotted. They were pitching. That was the different kind of pitching. Yes, they, they, were pitching. They, they were pitching. They weren't throwing. And they, they were geared for that. And, you know, you look at guys like Warren Spahn and, and Lou Burdett and all those guys from the 50s and 60s. Well, they were trained. And look, even the Braves back in the 90s, they had a, what, many times they had a four-man rotation with Maddox, Glavin, uh, and those guys. They, they would pitch every day. They threw every day. But look at the, that staff. Smoltz, even Smoltz. He was throwing in the low 90s, but he was the fastest guy in that rotation. They were uh, Glavin and Maddox were throwing in the 80s, and they never got a sore arm ever. So th th there's a different category of pitching today. And when you go to a tryout camp, all they do is take out that radar gun. How fast can you throw, kid? 91. Sorry, you ain't got it. So these kids are rearing back and throwing as hard as they can. And they, they do that until their arm breaks. And well, I want I want to bring up a I want to bring up a couple things, Mark, that you just said about the Braves pitching staff. All right. First of all, John Smoltz did have arm problems. All right, but he was the hardest throwing Why? of of the he was the hardest throwing. Taking your idea into consideration, he was the hardest throwing of the pitching that the Braves had. And what did they, but, wait a minute? What what did they do with Smoltz? They, they moved him into the bullpen. That's right. Yeah, they, they moved him into the bullpen. But this was years after his arm problems. 
It was years after his arm problem. And he didn't have any more arm problems after he went to the bullpen. But they, they moved him into the bullpen more, more, I mean, they used the excuse moving him into the bullpen because of his age. But he was, he was throwing harder in the bullpen than he was as a starter. Well, that's, yeah, because he could blow it out in the bullpen, yeah. That's, I, I understand what you're saying, and I don't, I don't argue with the premise. But here's another thing. Leo Mazzoni, who was the pitching coach then for the Braves, he said, that the reason that the Braves never had any arm problems during their heyday was because he had them throwing every day. That was his reasoning for them not. So how do you answer that? Because they weren't throwing that hard. It's the torque on your body. If, if you look slow motion of a guy throwing 100 miles an hour, the, the, the repercussions of that pitch on the entire body is unbelievable. A guy who's 6'2", 6'3", a big, strong guy, 220 pounds. You look at the position, the torquing of his body, to let loose of a, a fastball at 98 to 100 miles an hour. It is, it is incredible strain on the body. And what I'm saying is that you don't have, to, you don't have to do that. as You can't do it as a starter forever. You're going to break down. And that's what's happening. These young kids... They come into to, to the major leagues throwing 98 or 100, and they kind of bake it into the cake. Yeah, well, once he has Tommy John, he won't be throwing that hard because everybody knows he's going to hurt himself. My point is, if you have a 13-man pitching staff pitching two or three innings a game, those guys won't get hurt, number one. Number two, they're going to be more effective. The manager can be more strategic with his pitching staff. He could have a guy come in and face one hitter, get the big out in the fourth inning, because he wants to, you know, get out of that inning. And you have plenty of pitching to do that. It's it's certainly a huge change in the dynamic of a pitching staff. I'm not saying it's not. But I would bet, statistically, you'd have a much better pitching staff if you had it broken down that way. And a, and a Kluber would never pitch more than three innings in a game. Well, Mark, you know, it's it's an interesting idea. Um, it's something that you're right. Baseball traditionalists will probably steer clear of because it, it totally is. It's a radical idea. But then again, the most radical idea that baseball has had over the last 100 years, there's been two of them over the last 100 years. The first was the designated hitter. They still can't agree on that. And the second is interleague play. Those are the two big changes in baseball over a hundred years, Mark. Yeah, and I don't think it's changed dramatically. Either one of those things has changed the sport one iota. Uh, this would change the sport to the extent that I think your pitching staff, a, a pitching staff designed with that kind of strategy in mind. I'm not saying you could convert any pitching staff today to do that. I'm saying if you knew you were going to do that, the way you would staff your pitching staff would be different. And I think that would, you know, the first team that tries that and is successful, it's going to change baseball as we know it. And boy, I'll tell you, it would make hitting awfully difficult because you'd have any number of pitchers that can come in and fill a very specific role against a very specific hitter. And you, and again, if he's not pitching more than three innings or maybe put a pitch limit of 40 pitches that any pitcher would throw in any given day, that he can recover from that in two days. So you're saying in your plan, in your idea, is that these pitchers could throw every other day? They could, depending on how hard they throw. And what, Let's what use Ronald Chapman. Out. Let's use him as as the prototype guy okay. that would be involved in this. Okay. Tell, me, tell me how you would work it. Well, with Chapman, he's such an anomaly, I would probably leave him for a you know a late inning guy. Now let, let's look at the, the, the look at Kluber, okay. Depending on when, if he knew he was going to pitch, there's a chance he's going to pitch three days a week. I think he changes the way he prepares for a game. I think they would be everybody basically would be in the bullpen, and those guys, as you well know, some of those guys pitch five times a week. Four times a week. That's not that's not rare at all. A winning team will have their their reliever in there for seventy innings, 
maybe 65, 70 games a year. That's not unusual. So what's the difference if you did that with a, a Corey Kluber, who's historically a starter? What? How many innings did he pitch last year? 200, 220? Yeah, somewhere in that area, about 200, 210. Okay. So let, let's say, you, you just for argument's sake, let's say you want to limit him to 100 innings a year or 120 innings a year. You, you could pick your spots where you use a guy like that. And, again, it would be an adjustment for the starters, to be sure. But for the relievers, it would be no big deal. They, they're doing it right now. So you'd have four or five guys who would approach the game a little differently. And Nick Kluber, he, he throws 93-94 consistently. So if he knew he was only pitching two or three innings, what do you think he could do in terms of velocity? I don't think, you know, I think you're using the wrong guy. Okay. As far as Corey Kluber. Corey Kluber is not going to change his approach to pitching just because his innings shrink. Um, or the amount of innings that he pitches per, per appearance shrink. That's, that's uh, he, fair. That's fair. You know, I would think that maybe Carlos, I'll tell you a guy that, that this might fit perfectly is Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer is the type of guy that wants to nibble, 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 nibble. And when he, if he would just go out there and just blow people away for two or three innings, it might improve his his game. Hello, Mark. Are you still there? Uh, somehow we, we've lost I'm here. Mark. There we go. There okay, he is. sorry. Yeah, sometimes this uh, internet uh, doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. I apologize. <clears throat> but any, I mean, you know, I think Trevor Bauer is probably uh, your best case scenario uh, with that because he could he could throw it and throw it and throw it and, and not have to worry about nibbling. Well, what? Let, let's take it. Look at it this way. Let's start over with the pitching staff, and maybe you want to start with Chapman. Let's say you have 13 guys who throw almost as hard as Chapman. And you decide, I don't need those guys to go anymore. The most anybody would go is three innings. Most of them are going to go two innings. And you just keep bringing out these studs that are going to be throwing 98 to 100 miles an hour, batter after batter after batter. And then you line them up, left-handed, right-handed, depending on what the, the lineup is. I'm telling you, that that would be a very, very tough pitching staff to go against. Mark, there's a couple of things that have happened on this day in baseball. Then I want to get into a player that I think might be interesting for the Indians. But there are two things that happened on these days in baseball. The first one happened in 1939. Do you have any idea what happened on this day in baseball in 1939? Uh, Let me see. I was in. It is a very, very well known thing. What? Lou Gehrig? What? Lou Gehrig. Yeah. Stopped his streak. Yeah, that's the last time he played. And uh, yeah. You know what he did? This is how he did it. <clears throat> he was in New York, and he, or he I'm sorry, he, he was in Detroit. They were playing the Tigers. And he went in and told Yankee manager Joe McCarthy early in the morning on May 2nd, 1939, I'm taking myself out of the lineup. And McCarthy looked at him and said, if that's the way you want to do it, okay. And at that point in time, Mark, Gehrig was hitting four for 28 through eight games, and he knew something was wrong, and he never returned to the lineup after that. You know, he made a comment, Lou Gehrig did. Uh, I read his biography, and he said the most difficult part of all that is he couldn't play defense. He couldn't move, and he was a good defensive player when he was in his prime. And he said at one time what really got him to make the decision was that there was a routine ground ball to first base that he picked up and, and struggled to get to the bag, got the guy out. And some young kid on the Yankees team, a rookie, came up and said, way to go, Lou, great play. And uh, he said he knew at that point that uh, he, something was terribly and fatally wrong with him, obviously. And that's one of the decisions he made to take himself out of the lineup. He just he couldn't do anything anymore, and, and everybody knows how that ended. 
the streak started on June 2nd, Mark. It started on June 2nd, 1925, and it ended on May 2nd, 1939. He was 30 days from making it a, a complete cycle, but it, he couldn't do it. Now, another thing happened on this day in baseball in 1988. Do you know what that was? Uh, Pete Rose? Pete Rose suspended 30 days by National League President Bart Giamatti because he shoved umpire Dave Pallone in the ninth inning of a 6-5 to loss to the Mets, inciting a near riot among Cincinnati fans, which I understand, Mark, you were actually in the middle of it spearheading that riot. Yeah, I saw that game on TV. <laughs> I would have knocked Pallone out, probably. But, uh, yeah, I remember Pete and, and Dave, I, I want you to, to take note here. I am two for two tonight on your trivia stuff. That's okay. So, you were over the re- beginning hey, of the year. Hey, pal, I'm two for two. <laughs> Let's move on. All right. Let's move on. This is the last topic of the night, and it's fairly interesting because, quite honestly, I think the Indians ought to take a flyer on this. They, they have rehab projects all the time. And this is a guy, Mark, that I think is, especially after the Carrasco injury, this is a guy I think the Indians could make a flyer on. Tim Lincecum is holding a pitching showcase in Scottsdale, Arizona this Friday, trying to come back from arthroscopic hip surgery last year. He's a two-time Cy Young Award winner. He's going to throw in front of scouts from at least 20 teams, which include the Giants, the Orioles, the Padres, and the A's. Mark, I think the Indians ought to take a flyer on this guy. I, I really do. I think this would be the perfect guy to come in and take a flyer on. If if I was the Indians and, and Chris Antonetti and Terry Francona, let's bring him in and see if he can work out. Well, it, it all depends on the money, and it, that goes back to my point that Lincecum is a guy that I would put in the bullpen because he's got a funky delivery, and it, it may be tough for, for you know hitters to pick him up first time around, and he could really help you in the bullpen. Did you say the Indians and the Reds were part of those teams invited to watch him pitch? Oh, there are 20 teams, but the Indians and Reds, they don't say whether they're part of the 20 teams or not. They just say uh, Orioles, Padres, A's, and the Giants are are four of the teams that they know of. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I think he, obviously, it becomes money. The guy probably doesn't need a lot of money. He's being paid a lot of money by the Giants right now uh, not to pitch. So, uh, I don't know if he's under contract with them or they just re- No, he's not an, he's, he's free agent right now. Okay, I didn't know if they re- released him officially or not, but, uh, I know well, they signed him for a long-term right contract. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't know if it was still in force and effect or not, but, <clears throat> I mean, he got, the last few years he pitched, or last year or so, he got lit up, and, and it was because, obviously, of injury, but, yeah, a guy who wins two Cy Youngs, you take a chance on, I think. And he's only 31. Yeah. He's only 31. Mark, uh, we'll talk more about this next week, but the Indians and Reds are playing this month. They're playing two games in in Cleveland on Monday, Tuesday, two weeks from tonight and tomorrow night. And then they're down in Cincinnati on May 18th and 19th, two weeks from Wednesday and Thursday night. Again, Major League Baseball just has absolutely no idea that there are five hours in between Cleveland and Cincinnati, and they put him on weeknight gate, weeknight games. <laughs> well, you know what's scary about where the Reds and the Indians are right now? The Reds are eight games back, the Indians six. Uh, by June 1st, the two teams that we love and adore, uh, they could be, you know, eight to 10 to 12 games out of first place, and effectively the season's over going into June. That's they when you're be. eight games back after April and six games back, like the Indians are. Uh, it, you know, you're one seven or eight game losing streak from being out of it. That's when you get yep. to a bad start. So hopefully these teams can uh, pull themselves together and uh, perform at least like the Indians are supposed to. Mark, what do the what do the uh, Reds have going this week after tonight's game with the Giants? Well, they got three games with the Giants, uh, culminating on an afternoon game on Wednesday, and then they played Milwaukee uh, for four games. So uh, the Reds have some chances this this month. They're playing teams that that uh, kind of are of their ilk uh, with losing records. They they can actually uh, hopefully do pretty well, play 500 at least. But if they don't, it's uh, it's going to be ugly early for the Reds. 
as far as the Indians are concerned, they've got Detroit tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Kansas City comes to town Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon. Mark, we'll talk about all of it again on next week's show. Have a good week. Have a good one. That's going to do it for us tonight. Don't forget, coming up tomorrow on Ultimate Sports Talk, we've got high school baseball for you. Waynedale will be at Ritman tomorrow afternoon. We'll be on the air with the pregame show at about 4.45. That's going to do it for us tonight. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. For Mark Donahue, I'm Dave Mitchell. Have a good week, everybody. The Wiz Kids have won it. Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball.